Thank you for coming, everybody. We can go ahead and get started with today's event. My name is Matt Weibel. I'm one of the directors of government affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, thank you to those of you who are here in person, to those who are watching on live stream. Also, thank you to the Cato conference team for doing all the work behind the scenes to put this event together. They make it very easy for us to do these events up here. Today's Capitol Hill briefing is entitled, Should Cryptocurrencies Be Regulated Like Securities? Cryptocurrencies are now a $270 billion market, and initial coin offerings, or ICOs, raised more than $8 billion in the first five months of 2018. Today, we'll address the following question, what is the appropriate regulatory framework for this emerging financial technology? Our panelists will outline a regulatory framework for securing innovation while ensuring protection against fraud and crime. Diego Zuluaga is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial, Financial Alternatives, where he covers financial technology and consumer credit. Before joining Cato, Diego was head of financial services and tech policy at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. He authored papers on the social value of finance, the regulation of online platforms, and the taxation of capital income. And he's also the author of the paper that's on your chairs, Should Cryptocurrencies Be Regulated Like Securities? Also with us is Brian Knight, the director of the Program on Financial Regulation and a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center. Brian's research focuses on numerous, numerous aspects of financial regulation, including the creation of pro-innovation regulatory environments, the role of federalism in fintech regulation, the use of digital assets for financial transactions, the role of regulation for credit markets and consumer protection, and the provision of capital to businesses. We'll have time for questions at the end, but please hold until then. Um, and as always, if you'd like more information from Cato on cryptocurrencies or any other topic, feel free to grab me after the briefing. Um, we can exchange emails, and we're happy to be a resource for you guys on Capitol Hill. And with that, um, please welcome Diego Zuluaga. Thank you, Matt. Um, well, thank you all very much for coming. The main message I wish to convey to you uh, is that cryptocurrency networks are very exciting and a very rapidly uh, evolving new set of technologies, indeed so rapidly evolving that the $270 billion market cap that I cite in my paper is already out of date because uh, the market cap, uh, as of the latest count, is $300 uh, billion. And probably by the time we leave this room, it will again uh, have changed. So very rapidly evolving. It's emerging as a key capital formation mechanism for entrepreneurial ventures. So for new firms trying to raise capital, uh, the uh, projects involving cryptocurrency networks are becoming increasingly important. And the more significant policy question is that um, as a leading financial services uh, hub, the United States is unfortunately falling behind other leading financial services uh, locations around the world. And that has to do with fragmentation on two different counts. Uh, on one hand, fragmentation uh, between state and federal authorities. And then secondly, fragmentation between regulators of the capital markets and of financial services markets. Uh, Fortunately, though, uh, there are moves that can uh, facilitate uh, an updating of regulations to uh, more easily and more um, um, sort of openly 
uh, welcome the rise of these uh, new technologies, and that's what I uh, wish to present to you in uh, you know, my paper and, and, and my subsequent remarks. So first of all, let's start with the bas basics. What is a cryptocurrency? Well, a cryptocurrency, uh, according to uh, most documents you will read, is a digital representation of value. Now, what does that tell us? It means that holding a cryptocurrency entitles you to the acquisition of goods and services on certain platforms. It represents your right to obtain something on a particular platform. So, for example, Bitcoin, which is the most uh, well-known cryptocurrency, is a payment system, and the ownership of Bitcoins allows you to transfer funds on the Bitcoin network. Now, the advantage of that is that transaction costs on the Bitcoin network are comparably low uh, in, in, by comparison relative to other uh, payment systems. Um, in the case of the Ethereum network, which is another uh, major cryptocurrency, it's about the allocation of computing power, so allocating computing power between different platforms. Um, the point is that cryptocurrencies allow the exchange of value without an intermediary. Traditionally, online and offline, the exchange of value has depended on someone sitting in the middle of the transaction and making sure that those wishing to acquire something and those selling that particular good or service uh, exchange value in the way that they had agreed. Cryptocurrency technology, as pioneered by Bitcoin about 10 years ago and then uh, improved or uh, altered in different ways by newer projects, uh, has removed the need for an intermediary. It uses cryptography uh, and other uh, ad advancements of peer-to-peer um, -peer technology to remove the intermediary and therefore enable people to interact with each other without someone having to sit in the middle. That is not just technologically very interesting, but it can reduce the cost of transactions to the extent that no one needs to be remunerated at the center for those transactions taking place. Now, since Bitcoin first came about, uh, a number of other projects have emerged and now we have over 1,600 uh, different cryptocurrencies, and not only uh, have they emerged as a way to make payments easier, to make the running of internet platforms uh, frictionless or less difficult, uh, and there's an increasing amount of wider applications, but also we have something emerging called the initial coin offering, which, uh, as you probably can notice, uh, looks very similar to an initial public offering, although the term is a bit misleading for, for reasons I will touch on uh, in a moment. But the initial coin offering is a way for entrepreneurial ventures to raise capital for their projects, to raise uh, funds. Uh, and in exchange, they promise to the people providing the funds tokens uh, that will entitle them to acquire goods and services in the future once the particular venture is live, once it's functional. Um, and initial coin offerings, even though they're a very young fundraising device, uh, have already reached nearly $20 billion. So, the two, those are the two uh, main uh, descriptions or main institutional factors in this particular space. Uh, but as far as the policy question is concerned, uh, the, the, there has been concern for the uh, last number of years that there isn't uh, enough oversight and consumer protection uh, in these particular uh, areas of, of, of this rising market. And um, as a result of that, um, there, has, there have been initiatives to try and see what sort of institutional designation, what sort of legal uh, framework should apply to cryptocurrencies. And the main question has involved whether cryptocurrencies are commodities or securities. Now, there is a um, significant difference between uh, the, the, the liability and the applicable framework in these, in the, in these two uh, different cases, not least because uh, in, the, in the case of regulation as securities, it would be the Securities and Exchange Commission that would be 
um, involved in, in regulation and uh, the number of disclosures and registration that would be required from issuers of cryptocurrencies um, would be those of uh, securities. Now, um, the main test for defining whether something is a security um, comes from the 1940s and uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's a precedent called the Howey test. Uh, and it involves cryptocurrencies meeting the following four criteria. It has to be an investment of money in a common enterprise uh, in the pursuit of profits from the efforts of others. Now, the question is uh, whether cryptocurrencies as they currently exist uh, meet that particular uh, legal test. Um, and uh, of course, we are used to uh, you know, designations of securities in cases where you have a firm that is issuing equity, for example, and that equity entitles the people who own it to certain cash flows that will uh, come from the venture, certain profits, and those will be obtained by the work of other people um, in the particular firm, and uh, the shareholders will be remunerated. In the case of cryptocurrencies, it's different because we're talking about tokens that entitle you to buy goods and services on the particular platform. If you're an owner of Bitcoin, you are not a shareholder in something called Bitcoin. You own Bitcoins, tokens that allow you to make payments on the network, um, but those do not entitle you to the residual cash flows from any firm called Bitcoin because there is no intermediary. Instead, what you have is a situation in which people are exchanging value without an intermediary, uh, and in the process, the particular tokens may change in value themselves, uh, but they have no entitlement to cash flows. So it is difficult to um, incorporate a cryptocurrency into the traditional definition of a security uh, to the extent that there is no, uh, there are no uh, profits being pursued by, from the efforts of, of third parties. Uh, right? Um, so, the, um, I think the, the sort of the, the, um, the, the more appropriate, I suppose, um, uh, legal uh, framework to apply is, is that of a commodity. Because if we think about cryptocurrency networks such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, what we have is tokens that are inputs into production of goods and services uh, on these platforms, um, and they are a key part of the production process. What, what, sort, of, what sort of responsibilities, what sort of um, framework is best applicable to these cryptocurrencies that are emerging, right? And here we have uh, decentralized applications that, um, are, that, that enable the transfer of goods and services, and, 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 and you know, in the case of Bitcoin, uh, payments. Um, and the question is, uh, whether they, first of all, meet the existing definition of a security, which we've discussed. It's whether, you know, it, it involves the efforts of others, the creation of profits, and, uh, and, and so forth. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, and, and then secondly, what the appropriate framework is, uh, provided that, um, provided, you know, if, if we wish to encourage these technologies to emerge. Right. And uh, in, in, in the particular case of, of securities, uh, a securities designation for cryptocurrencies would involve uh, placing disclosures on exchanges that are uh, dealing in cryptocurrencies and placing a number of wealth uh, and income requirements on the people who own uh, cryptocurrencies that would put them out of reach, out of the reach uh, of uh, most uh, individuals, uh, whereas in, in the case of commodities, uh, the acquisition and holding of these uh, tokens is uh, much more open. Um, so um, th that's, that's the question as far as the securities versus commodities uh, distinction is concerned. An initial coin offering um, is a promise 
of uh, a future token, uh, uh, sort of one of these entrepreneurial platforms um, promises uh, the development of a platform and giving tokens to uh, individuals in the future in exchange for funds today. Um, and um, in, in, those, um, in those instances, um, the, uh, the, the consumer protection issues uh, can be greater because there, there, is, there is relatively less known about what the functionality of the platform uh, will be in the future. Now, um, the main focus of regulatory attention in terms of worries about consumer protection uh, has been on the ICO side uh, because um, there, there have been instances of fraud and there have been allegations of fraud, uh, you know, instances in which, you know, up to 25% of uh, ICOs have been uh, called out as fraudulent. Um, and... Um, the, the important point to remember is that uh, ICOs are a relatively small fraction of the entire cryptocurrency market. So cryptocurrencies, uh, market capitalization is currently 300 billion, as we said. The total number of, the, the total amount of funds raised via ICOs up to the present date uh, is $19 billion. So uh, we're talking about a relatively small part uh, of the overall cryptocurrency market. And applying uh, securities disclosure laws and, and, and registration requirements to the entire market, uh, simply because of consumer protection concerns and fraud concerns, in a small segment uh, would probably uh, involve more cost and benefits to the extent that the ability for these networks to develop and reach uh, a greater base of, of customers is impeded. Um, so. Now, going into my paper, um, what I propose is the following. I examine the legal precedent, the Howey test, which was developed in 1946, a long time ago, um, and I find that the securities designation that has been proposed doesn't really apply to cryptocurrencies for two reasons. Firstly, because uh, cryptocurrencies themselves are tokens, they are not a contract for investment. And secondly, well, because uh, the... Um, because and cryptocurrencies are far more decentralized than uh, most of the uh, securities uh, issuers to which a securities definition would normally apply. Instead, uh, it seems that uh, a commodities designation is more appropriate because these are, um, the to these are tokens in fixed supply. Um, they are an input into production of goods and services on these peer-to-peer -peer, uh, networks. And um, they... Um, would involve, uh, you know, they would also keep the market more open uh, to access for people who want to buy uh, these um, items. Um, and then as far as, the, as, as far as initial coin offerings are concerned, uh, I think there a, a securities designation is uh, more plausible than in the case of existing cryptocurrency networks because you have a firm trying to raise capital in selling a contract to somebody today in exchange for tokens tomorrow, and that contract may be designated as a security if it's tradable on secondary markets and uh, it's uh, an investment of money on the part of someone uh, in the pursuit of profit. And of course, because other people are the ones working on the platform, uh, they, um, they are the ones from whose efforts those profits derive. So the definition of the Howey test that we discussed previously uh, seems to apply uh, more uh, appropriately there. However, there may be well instances in which a new platform comes up and wants to raise money from uh, people with funds. And it says to them, we will give you tokens 
uh, we will give you a right to tokens in the future for this platform that we're developing, that we're building right now, and you give us funds today. But you may not trade this contract that I'm selling you on secondary markets between now and the platforms being developed. And then secondly, um, you, will, um, you, you will only be able to use this uh, entitlement once the platform uh, goes live. That is much more akin to a crowdfunding uh, system, to some sort of Kickstarter type of process. And in those cases, you would be talking not about a securities contract, but a, but a forward contract. Uh, and forward contracts, um, I'm, I'm sorry to throw all these various different terms at you, but forward contracts uh, they involve many fewer disclosures and they're much closer to traditional farming contracts in which a farmer approaches someone and says, I'm going to cultivate coffee, I will give you coffee beans in the future for funds to help me with uh, the harvest today. Um, in that way, by building such a two-tier system, uh, we are making sure that the concerns about consumer protection and fraud are addressed because most of the fraud is focused on the initial coin offerings that involve speculative investment uh, between the raising of the funds and the functionality of the platform during, during that time period, while also giving an avenue for people who, in good faith, just want, want to raise funds for a platform and don't wish uh, for any particular element of speculation to be involved in this. They don't, they're not looking for short-term profit, but rather are looking to build something by raising funds today. In that way, you give those people a second option as far as their uh, initial coin offering goes. Now, to conclude, the main point is to say that as a result of jurisdictional uh, differences, you know, at, at the state level versus the federal level, um, and also as a result of the division of powers between the Securities and Exchange Commission, which regulates securities markets, and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, uh, which regulates commodities, um, and as well as the IRS, and, and, and which obviously is responsible for tax policy, and FinCEN, which deals with financial crime. As a result of this division of powers, we have come to a situation where there's tremendous regulatory uncertainty as to the status of uh, cryptocurrencies. And by more clearly defining the um, the, 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 the question of which cryptocurrencies, if any, uh, qualify as commodities versus securities and what the status of ICOs is, we can help to clarify that and uh, get much closer to the pioneering jurisdictions around the world, such as Singapore and Switzerland, uh, which have quickly adapted the legal frameworks to accommodate this new technology. It remains to be seen how much market potential uh, these cryptocurrencies will have in future, but I do think that uh, a lot of it will be determined by uh, uh, the provision of greater regulatory certainty. Thank you. Thanks, Diego. Now we have Brian Knight from the Mercatus Center. Thank you, everybody. Uh, my name is Brian Knight. I'd like to thank the Cato Institute for having me. Um, so just to sort of briefly uh, piggyback off of Diego's comments, I mean, I, a challenge in crypto regulation is you. the first threshold question you, you need to answer is, well, just what are these things? And the answer is, it depends. So let's use a, a thought experiment. I want to raise money for a company. I am in the process of offering securities. I don't have stock certificates on me. So I take out the dollar bills from my wallet, and I write one share Brian Co., and you give me the money, and I give you the, the, the dollar with the memorializing your right to one share in my company. Well, is that a security? Yes. 
can you go take that dollar and put it in the vending machine and get a soda? Yes. It's, at the same time, security and money. This is the, uh, this thought experiment, I think, neatly sums up the challenge of regulating crypto because it can be many different things at the same time. And therein lies, or subjects it to regulation by multiple regulators who are in good faith and reasonably applying the statutes that they are responsible for applying to a particular transaction or a particular asset or a particular entity. The problem is, of course, then you're having multiple, potentially conflicting, and certainly burdensome regulatory regimes being applied to the same asset. Not necessarily, though, the same transaction, but certainly the same asset. This creates a challenge for the holders of the asset, where if you own Bitcoin, to, 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 go, to go to the original, uh, if you own Bitcoin, it, is simultaneous, it simultaneously can be money, property, a commodity, and a security, depending on which regulator you talk to and how you're using it, which means you can have some fairly bizarre outcomes where it's treated like money for FinCEN, but you have to realize again as if it was a Monet painting or else the IRS will be angry at you. So, and yeah, again, this is not necessarily regulators being unreasonable. It is technology pushing up against an existing regulatory framework that made a certain amount of sense. I don't, I don't want to go overboard in saying how much sense it made, but it made a certain amount of sense. And yet it is being pressured by advances in technology. It is worthy of wondering whether or not we should reconsider the regulatory environment for not, and I should say not just for cryptocurrency, but for these transactions in general, with cryptocurrency being a piece of evidence or an indicia that this regulatory framework is starting to show its age. One area I particularly want to focus on, and Diego definitely alluded to it, but, but this is an area I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about more than is probably healthy, is the interaction between federal and state regulation. Now, the sale of securities in the United States, as a general rule with some very real exceptions, is governed at the federal level. There is fairly broad federal preemption for the sale of securities. So if you are using a token as your vehicle for selling securities, the token is memorializing a securities interest in a particular company. And you, the token, the company issuing the ICO, are, are on the right side of the SEC. You've done the necessary filings, et cetera. There is still the potential you could get into trouble because if that token you're using is also considered to be money by some state, and state money transmitter laws are both broad and varying, so the odds are pretty good you're going to get caught up one way or the other, then there is a question as to whether or not you needed to be registered as a money transmitter at the state level. And if you fail to do that, there is a question as to whether or not you may face not only state liability and possibly state criminal charges, but also federal criminal charges because it is a felony to engage in a money services businesses without the necessary state license. Now, that scenario I just painted is not a guarantee. I mean, you, you'd have to actually kind of sort through the facts and circumstances of any individual situation. But if you are using a token that is, can be considered both a security and a piece of, of you know, money, you run this risk. And it is unclear to me 
whether or not this is a good use of the regulatory system, whether or not this is an optimal regulatory design. And it is worth us thinking about these type of questions. My, my off the back of the envelope proposal, and, and you know, look, this is a thorny question and people smarter than me wrestle with it. But I think what we need, we are getting a little too caught up on form. We're getting a little too caught up on, is it a token? Well, who cares if it's a token? And that's not to say we shouldn't care it's a token, but we need to at least acknowledge and lay out why is the token do, meaningful versus what right does this token represent? Because to go back to the whole, you know, stock security on a dollar bill, yeah, it's a dollar and you could use it at the store, but that's not what makes it meaningful. What makes it meaningful is the ownership it represents and memorializes and how you can use that as in the future to represent, uh, you know, or to redeem that right against Brian Co. for whatever it gives you, whether or not it's selling your share in Brian Co. for a, you know a profit, or the fact that it entitles you to some voting decision in Brian Co. or whatever. What's meaningful there is not the fact that it's a dollar. Or what's meaningful to the purchaser is not that it's a dollar. It's that the it's the right it represents. But what's potentially meaningful to the law is that it. It is, in fact, money and therefore will be treated as such. And we saw some of this. This SEC did a report on the Distributed Autonomous Organization, which, long story short, was a ether-based – it was supposed to be an ether-based distributed autonomous – well, I mean, the SEC considered it to be a fund. The DAO did not view itself as a fund, but it was something where you know people could put – valuable ether in there would be some voting mechanism for investing that ether in future projects with the hope of a, a profit in the future the sec did an and of course the dow came to a bad end as it was hacked and uh you know ultimately they had to fork ether um but at the end of the day the sec did an analysis and they said that hey you know what this actually looks an awful lot like securities this looks an awful lot like a you know like a vc fund and by the way, exchanges, if you are if, – if, if Ether is a security and you are an exchange that is doing Ether exchange, even if you're licensed as a money transmitter business or a money services business, you're also a securities exchange and you need to be licensed accordingly. Now, and I think the SEC – I'll give the SEC credit that they showed you know, admirable restraint in educating before they started bringing out the enforcement not only does that highlight the challenge of this sort of multiple use case, simultaneous use cases and the regulatory question, because you could, have a, you could be an exchange that is acting in good faith, properly licensed as a money services business, understanding that you are acting as a money services business, conducting all the AML, the KYC, the due diligence that a money services business requires. And it turns out that actually technically you're also a securities exchange and in violation of the law. But let's invert that for a second. Let's say ICOs become more mainstream, let's say ICOs become more valuable. There's also the risk that you will find, like I said, securities exchanges that find out, whoops, under New York, California, Idaho law. It turns out I'm also a money services business. And if I've been if I've been relying on federal preemption from the security side to offer services into those states, but it turns out that actually I'm also a money services business of for which there is not federal preemption there is possible liability. So what can, you know, what can we do about this? Well, the nice thing about Congress is, if they so choose, they can rewrite the law. And so I think a few, a few guide points I would point out to would be, one, 
look at the underlying right. Like, look at the underlying, what does this token represent? Don't get hung up on the token itself. What is the underlying nature of the transaction? What consumer protections are necessary for this type of transaction? Because the type of consumer protections you need for a securities offering are different from the type of, are somewhat different from the types of securities protections you need for a commodities offering, which is somewhat different from the type of consumer protections you need to buy a good or service, which is, of course, the other, you know, the quote-unquote utility token, which is a, a offer of a good, you know, it memorializes access to a good or service. So I think it's reasonable for Congress to try to clarify these rules. I mean, going back to the Howey test that was mentioned, it's an old test. It's a flexible test. Now, flexible tests sound great, and sometimes they can have good results, but the other problem with a flexible test is you don't necessarily know how, how broad or narrow it goes until there's a court case. And you, might, you may be the one in that court case, which, you know, in a perfect world or what we should aspire to, I don't want to just make it pie in the sky, we can achieve this or at least get closer. People should know what the rules they're going to be bound to are before they're bound to them so that they can accommodate and decide how to, how to operate. So providing clarification is, a, I think, an important idea. Providing a clarification, keying off, you know, what are the ongoing rights and obligations that are memorialized by the, by the token are an important obligation. Another point I would, I would want us to consider is let's look at the technology and see, does this technology address any risks that we've currently relied on regulation to address? And to use one sort of, you know, hypothetical, one problem in the securities space, particularly for private securities, is a lack of transparency on security, secondary securities price. You know, if something is publicly traded, you can look at the NYC, New York Stock Exchange and see, okay, what's this stock trading for? But if something, if it's a private company, it's thinly traded, it's not on a big, big exchange, it can be hard to figure out what the price for that security is on the market because it, there aren't, there's, you know, it's not well publicized and there aren't a lot of transactions. It is possible this is not, you know, I'm not endorsing this, but it is certainly possible that the type of distributed ledger technology that crypto assets rely on can address this because suddenly you have this publicly accessible distributed ledger showing transactions. If that is the case, again, if, some of the disclosure requirements that are currently baked into private securities laws and can be burdensome could maybe be rolled back. Not because we've decided, well, consumers just need less protection, but because, well, they're getting the protection from the technology. So we don't need the regulation. Conversely, it is also possible that the technology may introduce new risk. And if there, it introduces new risk, that, that justifies regulation. And not every risk justifies regulation. Then new regulation may need to be introduced. I would strongly urge that we not rush into new regulation. But if after calm, cautious, sober assessment there is a need, well, so be it. We'll move forward on that. The other issue is considering whether or not greater preemption of the states, in, purely in the space of money transmission, may make sense. Now, Congress has asked the states to harmonize their money transmission laws since at least 1994, I think, with, under Regal, with Regal Neal. Uh, I might be getting that date wrong. And the uh, chairman of the SEC and the CFTC have both, you know, wrote a joint op-ed recently pointing out that, you know, these th they have very little insight into the money transmission space money tr and what's going on there because it's a state-level activity, even though 
for these reasons, it does impact and press up against the commodities and securities industries, respectively. So, you know, maybe state, and to their credit, the states are engaging in an effort to harmonize their rules. But then again, there are reasons to doubt that that harmonization may, you know, actually sustain or be durable. I'm, I'm happy to be proven wrong on that. But, you know, past, past experience indicates that it might be a challenge. So, there, there may need be a justification and a need for greater federal involvement and greater federal preemption, which is, is a big hammer to swing. But there are times where it can be justified. And I, given the, the borderless, stateless nature of this technology and the fact that it's inherently or core interstate commerce, there is, there is certainly, I think, would argue a constitutional hook there, or at least Congress would not be uh, exceeding its authority. And there may actually be some very real, very positive reasons to do so. Um, anyway, I, those are just some, some thoughts on the topic and, you know, I look forward to any questions you may have and, and if I can be of any help, just let me know. So we have around 20 minutes or so for, uh, Q and A. I'm going to start with a few. Um, and Brian, I kind of want to touch on one of the later points that you made about congressional action. Um, you mentioned that people should know the rules that they are bound to, right? The law should be equal, general, and certain. People should know. Um, how quickly does Congress or, um, you know, the SEC or the CFTC need to take action so there is that regulatory certainty or, you know, legal certainty as far as coming something coming from Congress? Well, okay. So, I mean, they don't need to take action, um, but I, so I, I would say this would be a good thing for Congress to look at and do as quickly as they can get it right. So don't, you know, ru rushing off to, to write some legislation or to pass some legislation without doing the, the hard work in advance is a bad idea. And if you do that, for the, please do not name it Brian's Law. I just, I, I beg you of that. But that said, it, this, is a, this is a good topic for Congress to start wrestling with because I, it's not going away. And by it, I don't necessarily mean crypto because, you know, I, I, will plead, I will plead ignorance that I don't know what the future of crypto is. But technolo both the tech technological and the business reality are starting to push on some of our regulatory assumptions in a way that even if it isn't crypto that's doing it in the future, something else will be doing it. And so, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's fine to say that there's nothing you can do with crypto that you can't do with a database, and, you know, that may or may not be true. I'm not going to take a side on that. But if you can do it with a database, then the, the business reality, the, the market demand is going to be pushing us in this direction anyway. So revisiting this and rethinking this, I think, is due and, and worthy of, of consideration. Uh, Diego, this is more for you. You mentioned that there are more than 1,600 different cryptocurrencies. How often do they come to the market, and what barriers to entry do they face, if any? Well, um, they, of course, the proliferation of, of cryptocurrencies has only been increasing uh, since about 2014. The first one, Bitcoin, uh, came to market in 2009. As far as the uh, barriers to entry are, are concerned, uh, capital formation is a main one. And you know, going back to what the point that Brian was making right now, there's, the, there's a question as to whether we need legislative reform that specifically targets crypto, or also whether, or also whether crypto is raising issues about changing 
regulatory policy for capital formation as a whole. So right now, uh, if you are a firm trying to raise capital, you either have to, if you want to engage in an initial public offering, which is uh, an offering to all sorts of investors, you have to disclose information and engage in quite expensive um, registration uh, requirements, or you can just issue to a restricted number of people who tend to be uh, wealthy. Now, this distinction between what are called accredited investors and the rest uh, is increasingly being tested by uh, developments like uh, initial coin offerings, and it might be uh, the right opportunity to uh, try and address that distinction between those two. And in the capital formation package that went through last week through the House, there was an update to the accredited investor standard to try and broaden it, to try and make it easier for people who are not wealthy to have access to these private offerings. This might be the opportunity for it, and crypto might have uh, highlighted it. Uh, the second barrier is the fragmentation of legislation at the state level. If you're a cryptocurrency network particularly focused on payments, uh, according to uh, state law and also according to FinCEN, you're a money transmitter, and that means that you need to be licensed in different jurisdictions. I think there are up to 15 different licenses. There's an application uh, fee to be paid for each of those licenses uh, in a changing regulatory framework uh, uh, applicable uh, in each. Uh, fortunately, the uh, OCC now is uh, hopefully coming up with a new fintech charter that will uh, facilitate that uh, and, 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 you know, uh, to, some, to some extent uh, mitigate the, the barriers at the state level. And one last question from me before we uh, open it up to you guys. Um, given the fragmentation at the state level and regulatory questions of is it a commodity, is it a security, depends mm -hmm. on the status at the time, how much does that contribute to volatility. Over the past year, we've seen Bitcoin surge, and now we've seen it fall. Um, how much of that is driven by regulatory uncertainty? If you look at events, regulatory events happening at particular points in time, you see that a lot of the cryptocurrency volatility can be explained by that. So for example, in China, when China first mentioned that it might ban cryptocurrency exchanges, and when subsequently it did ban them, you had a 10% decline uh, in the Bitcoin price in each of those uh, cases. Every time there's been a, a significant regulatory revelation here in America, uh, about cryptocurrencies, there's been a price impact. So most recently, when William Hinman from the SEC uh, hinted that Ethereum uh, would probably not be regarded as a security according to uh, SEC uh, um, legal precedent and statute, uh, there was the, the you know that could, that was instantly reflected in the Ether price. So clearly, some of the volatility is explained by regulation. But of course, we're dealing with a new technology uh, that's highly evolving quite quickly, and therefore business uncertainty is also uh, a big driver, I think, of risk, price risk. All right, do we have any questions from the audience? I know we have a mic um, going around, so if you could just, yep, right here in the center, if you could. Thanks. Hey, Jay Jang with the American Bankers Association. So I had two questions. First, um, as I'm sure you both heard, Coinbase just got approved for a couple of their acquisitions this week, which gives them um, broker-dealer status for the SEC. And I think the hope is that you're going to see more widespread adoption, you know, seeing more as a security. I think th I thought that was relevant to this. Just wanted to get your thoughts on that. And also on the flip side, uh, how U.S. regulation um, compares with some jurisdictions overseas that you feel are successful at really fostering the kind of innovation and um, you know, the, the room to grow for these uh, kinds of technologies. Just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Second was 
looking outside of the capital market space, more so on monetary policy. So last week, financial services had a hearing about cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, central bank cryptocurrencies, and mm-hmm. you know the implications or the feasibility of that. Just wanted to get your thoughts on that. There's been some chatter about. You know, central bank issued non-interest bearing deposit accounts. Wanted to see if you thought that was a good idea or not. Thanks. So uh, I'll, I'll answer. I'll give you partial answers to both questions. Uh, in terms of comparing the United States to other "quote unquote" more successful, and maybe it's just me being an, a USA homer here, but I, I, I don't want us to say that we've lost yet. Um, you know. We're still the we're still the United States of America, um, but one big di- one big distinction we have versus the UK or Singapore or uh, you know some of these other uh, countries that have really made a, a very forward leaning effort on financial technology regulation is as Diego pointed out we're incredibly fractionalized. Both we have federalism, so right there you have dual overlapping fifty one plus one uh, you know governments with different rule sets. And then at the federal level, we have multiple overlapping regulators who overlap with each other and overlap with the states. So let's take you know, an example that, that bears on crypto but is more broadly related to financial innovation, which is, say, the concept of a regulatory sandbox. The FCA in the UK, early adopter, regulatory sandbox, has seemed to work out relatively well. Um, certainly gotten a lot of plaudits for it. Um, the FCA is the regulator. So if you go to the FCA sandbox, you don't need to worry about some other regulator coming after you. The FCA is the regulator. Well, Arizona, it's the first United first state to stand up its own sandbox. Well, okay, so you're an Arizona company. You're only doing business in Arizona. You probably don't have to worry about another state coming after you. Great. You still have the CFPB or BC, the Bureau. Let, let me, peace in our time, the Bureau. Um, the, you, still have the, you still have the bureau standing over top of you, right? And like, well, okay, Arizona might be okay with what I'm doing, but is the bureau going to be okay with what I'm doing? Or flip, you know, flip that around. Let's say the bureau launches a regulatory sandbox. Well, you know, the, the bureau is not a licensing authority, and you have to locate yourself somewhere. So what if the bureau says, hey, we think this is great, and an aggressive, say, New York attorney general says – well, you're a New York-based company, so I don't care what the bureau says. Like we have our own laws. You know, we, I will I will Martin Act you if you you know try something. So we there there is a need for that. One of the disadvantages we're working on is is that now there are advantages to federalism. I don't want to short sell it, but but just from this particular perspective, that's a cost that we are a headwind we face that most other countries don't. Um, and then on the monetary policy side, which you know I fully disclose is not my my firm area of expertise, but. I guess the one question I'd have is, do you need crypto to have a central bank-issued account? Or is that one of those things you could just as easily do with a database? And I don't know the answer to that, but, I, but this, does, this is an example as to what Diego was saying of like how crypto, crypto is getting us to rethink or ask a bunch of questions where the answer may not actually be crypto, right? We may end up in a world where we've, reform, we've reformed our regulation, the securities regulations much more streamlined. It's a much simpler system. We have central bank-issued accounts, which I'm not saying is good, but let's just say for the sake of argument, and none of it's crypto. And we're looking back on it 10 years later, and we're like, hey, remember that crypto stuff? Yeah, that was weird, but we got all this cool regulatory reform out of the deal, in which case, great. Assuming it's good regulatory reform. Yes, I, I broadly agree with Brian. In terms of the foreign jurisdictions that are ahead and the progressive made, I think two things distinguish them. 
if we're talking about Switzerland or Singapore or even the UK in some cases, Cayman Islands, is that they tend to have a narrower definition of a lot of these uh, financial products. Particularly with securities, they've more clearly defined. In the US, we don't have a statutory definition of a security. We have legal precedent, but nothing is explicitly defined in statute as what a security is. And I think that has created uncertainty. The second item is that a lot of these jurisdictions are hosts of cryptocurrency networks, but they're not a major center of buyers. And therefore, if the concerns come from consumer protection, they would worry less about that because fewer of the targets of a lot of these uh, offers of new coins are there. So therefore, they, in, in, to that extent, they have some advantage over the U.S., which is not just uh, a center for the development of these uh, new technologies, but also a, a, a massive market for them, right? Uh, in terms of central bank uh, cryptocurrencies, I don't think the crypto technology is particularly attractive to central banks because it's decentralized and uh, it involves the setting of parameters at the outset that cannot be changed because otherwise people will lose trust in the network, whereas central banks uh, care about being able to change their monetary policy on the basis of changing circumstances. So I don't think they would uh, themselves make much use of the technology. However, the use of digital currencies uh, is more uh, attractive to them. Of course, a lot of the monetary policy of, of the Fed and other central banks is already digital, but um, moving to a cashless system has been the goal of some central bankers, and I, I think that raises some uh, troubling policy issues in terms of not just value preservation, uh, but also the ability of then people to to move their capital around the world. You know, we're not just talking about the U.S. here, but other jurisdictions. So there are issues uh, there. And as far as Coinbase is concerned, I think other than the individual event of Coinbase uh, trying to obtain licenses to do more things, it just shows that this technology is going mainstream, not just that crypto exchanges and cryptocurrencies are doing more for retail customers, but also that more and more of the existing business will look at crypto as something to incorporate. And I think we already see this in Chicago with some of the Bitcoin futures contracts and, and other crypto futures contracts that are emerging. And that's desirable because it shows that uh, we can have an adaptation both of existing and of emerging players to, to, uh, to a more open regulatory environment. Uh, Ron Hammond with Congressman uh, Warren Davidson's office here. Um, so we're working on currently uh, legislation regarding cryptocurrency, in particular initial coin offerings. And some of the institutional players we've been talking to um, who haven't gotten involved yet said one of the biggest hurdles for them is the custody rules. Um, and so you know, being an investment advisor, you got to go through uh, third-party custodian, what have you. Mm -hmm. um, how do you guys feel about the current custody issues and um, ways to resolve it. Coinbase currently or recently launched a way to do custodian services, also cold storage as well, but um, it's kind of getting around the framework and the regulations in place. So how would you guys look at that issue? Well, the problem as far as the, 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 the first issue where custodian, uh, the custodian problem arose was with money transmitting businesses because as far as Vincent's concerned, the moment you are custodian of cryptocurrency for other people, you are considered a money transmitter uh, and that involves uh, a number of uh, obligations that I think a lot of these uh, exchanges uh, didn't expect. Uh, I suspect that if the designation uh, that applies to most cryptocurrencies ends up being that of commodities, uh, the, the custodian issue uh, will, will become less than if we, if we have a securities designation. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think Coinbase's application to be an alternative trading system uh, points the way for, 
what other exchanges will will probably do. We have time for a few more questions, if there are any more. Yep, up front. Hi, um, my name is Amy, and I had a question that goes back to the the dollar bill of Brian's uh, theoretical company. So, Brian, you you were saying that you put that dollar into a vending machine, or potentially could. Um, and my understanding is, once it's in the vending machine, it's it might be harder to trace it back to you because now it's become part of the vending machine. Maybe you took off. Brian's signature. Uh, one of the things that has come up recently is uh, the use of uh, Bitcoin and other other cryptocurrencies for human trafficking and other less desirable um, actions. Um, and you know, my understanding is that in in normal banking policies, there's more of an intermediary that helps protect. Um, against that type of fraud um, beyond just the hacking. Um, so my question is related to, so this dollar that you got, um, how, how would it be best to track uh, these transactions and whose responsibility, if not the SEC or not some type of securities council, um, like what would be best in order to prevent the less desirable outcomes of no longer being able to trace back um, the transactions. Yeah, that's a gr that's a great question, and obviously, it's obviously a very big issue. Though, let me just say at the threshold that yes, cryptocurrencies are being used for criminal activities, but so are dollar bills. Uh, you know, so I, I don't want to. And in some respects, crypto, from a law enforcement perspective, has some things to recommend it in that. You're, part of the, what, what's supposed to exist in your, your standard, I hesitate to use that word, cryptocurrency, is a publicly available and immutable ledger. And so unlike, say, me handing you a stack of dollar bills in a parking lot, where unless someone caught that on tape, there's no way to trace it, there is a publicly available ledger. And we have seen, and I, I believe this was in the, some of the recent uh, special counsel papers that they they allege anyway that they've traced back some Bitcoin transactions to Russian intelligence, because that that ledger is publicly available and with enough time and enough uh, you know sleuthing, you can link the pseudonym attached to the account to you know a, a, a potentially to an, an, uh, the actor. Um, the other thing is that. And, and this is one of the great – I would argue this is one of the great ironies of cryptocurrency is when Bitcoin first came out, it was like, we don't need intermediaries. We don't need trusted intermediaries. And as it's become more and more mainstream, guess what's cropped up? Intermediaries. Because intermediaries – yes, intermediaries can absolutely charge rents or, or, or you know, claim rents. And intermediaries can absolutely censor in ways they shouldn't. But they also provide value. And so to the extent that people are using a standard intermediary, they have the same AML, KYC, all, all of those requirements. To the extent they're not, um, then it is a little harder, but it's, it would be, I would think it's somewhat akin to people using a cash economy, uh, except that there is also this publicly available ledger. And so I think what we are seeing is law enforcement is focusing on how to analyze that ledger and how to, to make it useful. And of course, one other issue is that that ledger is, assuming, assuming things work the way they're supposed to, and they may not, 
uh, that ledger is immutable. So it's going to be available for the foreseeable future, where even if, this, let's say in, in, a, in a criminal case, the statute of limitations has passed. So you can't necessarily use it to bring a, con, a, a charge against somebody. That's still useful information for the future where, you know, that criminal actor operates again. So I, does that answer your question? Sort of? Okay, I mean, I think we have time for one more if we had one. Hi, my, my name is Landon. I'm with Congressman Emmer. <clears throat> um, one of the issues of laying down some principles in a speech that's not necessarily binding on the SEC is you have some of the more established actors coming in asking for that same sort of clearance. Uh, next down that line, I think, is Ripple. Have you looked at Ripple, and is that a security or not? Um, if you haven't looked at Ripple, are there other cryptocurrencies you've looked at that the agencies haven't given guidance to that might not be securities? Well, so I, I'm not in a position to pronounce a, a, any given thing to be a security or not a security. Um, but... I think it's worth, I mean, so I guess there's a two-point thing here, which is that we have, a set of, we have a set of vague and fuzzy principles we use to kind of assess whether or not something is or is not a security. That's not entirely satisfying. Uh, Congress could give, could create much more precise, clean principles that we could use, which would hopefully be more satisfying. That said, it does strike me that something like Ripple, from my understanding of it, and I am not an expert, that there, you could make a, a pretty good argument that it is not a security in the sense that, as I understand it, and I'm open to being corrected, the people conflate Ripple, the company, with XRP, the token, and XRP is actually an open source protocol that other people could use. And so a compet and you know, Ripple's out there selling software to banks that uses the protocol. But as I understand it, Another firm could show, Dripple could show up and say, you know what, we're going to use XRP, but we have, better pro we have a better product. You know, you don't need Ripple anymore. You need XRP. Ripple goes out of business. XRP remains. And that doesn't, that doesn't strike me like a corporate security. It looks kind of more like a man-made commodity. But, you know, that's just me sort of noodling through it here on this table, right? I mean, you know, people... Smarter people than me who charge $2,000 an hour should probably opine on that first. I think uh, with the same caveat, I think it's important to keep in mind in the case of Ripple that even though uh, a lot of the supply is used or is held by the company, um, the intention of holding that supply is to facilitate payments and in that way Ripple basically operates as an internal currency of a, of, of a company and uh, the trading in that uh, for profit from the work of others doesn't seem to be as clear cut as, as, as some people are trying to make it seem. Uh, also, uh, as far as I can tell, Ripple is becoming more and more decentralized. So uh, I think we may well find ourselves three months from now with uh, clearer state of affairs uh, to make such a judgment. So I, I think it's also important not to, not to rush in that particular case. Thank you everyone for attending. This concludes the program. Uh, feel free to contact me if you'd like to, to learn more about cryptocurrencies um, and we'll get you set up with the right scholars uh, at Cato. Thanks. <laughs>